Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. And today's show, we've got a really interesting episode, which is a bit different to our normal uh, topic area. So in the past, we've been deep diving on electric vehicle powertrain technology. And I've often talked about autonomous vehicles and, and my kind of interest in that space as well. And I've been really lucky to line up, I think, someone who's been involved in that space for a really long time, uh, one of the leaders, um, so Robert Lohman, who works for a company called To Get There, who are a developer and provider of, of automated autonomous transit systems, um, which is a really, uh, really exciting topic. So welcome to the show, Robert. It's great to have you with us. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, so would you just like to start, um, as has kind of become traditional on these interviews, just by giving us a bit of background to yourself, Robert, and, um, and explaining where, where you're from? Uh, yes. So um, I, I'm very Dutch. And that's always important to start off with because we're a country around the world knows uh, as, um, well, let's say everybody finds us really blunt while we ourselves find our uh, ourselves uh, very direct and straightforward. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, uh, having given that introduction, it also gives me the right to speak my mind today. <laughs> yeah, um, good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I've been involved in this industry for uh, over 20 years, uh, joining the predecessor of To Get There in uh, 1999 as uh, a marketing assistant. And within uh, a couple of months being uh, asked whether or not I could uh, promote uh, automated uh, vehicles that carry passengers uh, towards the market in the Netherlands. And uh, from, um, let's say, a, a trip around the Netherlands to meet every city that could use a system like that uh, in, in, well, let's say early 2000 uh, to uh, where we are at today, I've filled roles of uh, sales project director, chief operations officer, and currently uh, back in the role that I love most is uh, chief commercial officer. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so, so, I mean, really, really long time. Um, you know, 20 years ago, were, were people thinking much about autonomous, um, autonomous systems or, or were you kind of uh, greeted uh, and, and thrown back out again when you were going around? Uh, it was interesting. Everybody loved the idea. So um, uh, you, you're, you're always welcome to give your pitch. And then uh, ultimately, when it came to making decisions, um, uh, nobody wanted to be the first. And even when somebody was the first, nobody wanted to be second. Uh, so so you, you, you see an interesting trend there. Uh, and uh, it, it's not about... Uh, generating interest because there's always interest in innovation. Mm. It's about uh, creating a viable business case with the innovation that actually makes it sensible for cities to uh, proceed with steps to actually procure, install, and operate a system like that. I guess a lot has changed in 20 years with the the, the sort of underlying technology. The, the I mean the, the the vehicles themselves and and the the kind of navigation uh, systems capabilities and and, uh, and and all that. And 
were, were there um, was it more challenging in the early days from a technical point of view? Uh, the, well, the, 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 there's um, that depends on how you look at it. So uh, in the early days, uh, the focus was very much on uh, a passenger system that would use a dedicated lane and uh, deliver a certain capacity from A to B. Right. Uh, but at that time, uh, automated vehicles or autonomous vehicles driving on uh, rubber tires were still um, exceptional so it wasn't normal yet mm. uh, which means that in the early days we went to conferences that were for automated people movers which are the typical systems you see at airports uh, heavy traditional style uh, rail guided vehicles mm. uh, and when we were at those conferences uh, we were a little bit frowned upon because we were the guys that were doing the odd stuff um, uh, operating at grade having at grade intersections with other traffic it was different and i asked people uh, you know if we're not an automated people what are we and they said we don't know but you're certainly not an automated people mover uh, <laughs> and uh, it's it's only when the society of automotive engineers came up with levels uh, zero through five that all of a sudden the whole world said hey that's what you are you are level four autonomous vehicle mm. we said okay we'll take it and it put us in in, in a certain segment within the market um However, that did mean that all of a sudden the focus was very much on mixed traffic and the ability to operate amongst other traffic. Well, prior to that date, uh, we had been uh, focusing on creating transport capacities by having our own dedicated bus lane, if you will. Right. Um, so the capabilities and the technology have changed significantly because where previously you only needed to look out on what might be uh, on the guideway in front of you to make sure that you would stop in time. Now, all of a sudden, you have to look uh, all around the vehicle, take all these actions that people can make into account and be able to make a smart decision on, on, on depending on what happening, what's happening. Ah, okay, right. And, and to be honest, that's uh, uh, the biggest trick that nobody has fully uh, conquered yet because we as people have the tremendous ability to do stupid things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to do the unexpected. It's what makes us uh, humans. <laughs> uh, exactly. A, a, a predictable environment is the easiest for automation. Uh, mm. And as soon as... Uh, the predictability is gone. Automation is going to have its challenges because you get all these edge cases or exceptional situations that you need to prepare for. Mm. And you're um, in, in initially, then you 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 installed some systems running on um, on these guideways. We believe that we will be doing that uh, even in the future. Uh, so the, the the very first application that we delivered with uh, an autonomous shuttle on a dedicated guideway was in 1997 at uh, Schiphol Airport. Uh, second pilot project was installed in 1999 in uh, at Business Park Rivium in the Netherlands. And uh, especially the latter is an interesting case because that first generation uh, operated over a length of uh, approximately one kilometer uh, between 1999 and 2001. At that time, the city said, and the operating company, Connection, which is uh, part of Transdev, said, uh, listen, this is a, a great way of driving. Uh, we want to go for a second generation, and we want to extend the route. So 
uh, that application actually operated between uh, what was it two the late 2005 early 2006 till 2019 with the second generation vehicles uh, six vehicles that all clocked up to 300,000 kilometers each carrying about two two and a half thousand passengers per day wow. uh, and is now undergoing a renewal for the third generation. And the third generation actually has a further extension in it, which will go into mixed traffic and will use use the uh, Dutch uh, experimentation law for uh, autonomous vehicles to be certified to actually operate without safety steward on board and uh, should be delivered uh, sometime in uh, 2021. Oh, wow. So so will that system then, uh, Rivium, that will run partly in a guideway and par- partly in mixed traffic. Yeah, yeah. And the main difference that we see is uh, mixed traffic is all nice, uh, mm-hmm. uh, especially in situations where uh, the capacity of the current roads is not completely utilized yet. Because if uh, the roads are at capacity and you add autonomous vehicles, the autonomous vehicles are going to be in the same traffic jam as all the manually driven vehicles are. Yeah. So uh, uh, autonomous vehicles can provide... Um, a great value uh, to passengers. But uh, what you need to think about is uh, how fast is the vehicle going to be? And in Mm. mixed traffic, any autonomous vehicle is going to be the most courteous driver there ever is. So you're going to be as fast as the slowest other road user, which means that if there's a pedestrian in front of you or a bicyclist, you're not going to be going faster than he or she is, which means that you really have to think about what's the added value that you're providing for your passenger and is your passenger actually willing to pay for that? And are those payments going to be sufficient to earn back the investment in the autonomous vehicles? So the the, the business case um, uh, should be the starting point instead of the final point uh, where m- most of these systems are now being brought to market as technology push and just yeah, showing that we can do the trick. Well, uh, frankly, we've been showing that we can do the trick since 1997. So we're... We're, we're we're a little bit past that point. Mm. And do you, do you see then if you're able to operate on a on a guideway and in a mixed traffic environment, are are, are you close? Do you think to being able to um, sort of replace conventional uh, transit bus passenger bus type services with you know services with a driver with an autonomous um, shuttle service instead? So uh, I think it's actually very rare that we will replace a bus. Um, To be honest, a a bus is a a, a tremendous way to carry passengers along a certain corridor towards a a city center. Uh, The disadvantage of a bus is that um, if you want to have good access to the bus, you have to have frequent stops. Mm. uh, And uh, that slows down the average speed of the bus, making it less attractive to use. So uh, our type of systems are really first and last mile systems where we are connecting stations of the metro or stations of uh, the uh, bus systems uh, to their nearby surroundings, increasing the ridership of these systems. So really, we are trying to make uh, public transit more attractive and a better alternative to using the private car. Right. Okay. So, so yeah, the first mile, last mile, I guess, is that... Um... I mean that that that's a huge market getting that the first mile, last mile, and and potentially then driving more people onto the, the sort of mass transit systems like rail, um, which are, you, 
I don't know. I I always say that you would have an excellent rail system in the Netherlands, um, but I know most Dutch people think you don't have an excellent rail system. But compared to us in the UK, you've got a good rail system. It, it's it's usually what you're closest to. You are the most critical of, and uh, the the Dutch people are not only known for being very outspoken. They're, uh, in, in, I think, the saying in most countries is uh, a day where you have not laughed is a day you have not lived. Sometimes I think of the Dutch. It's a day where you have not complained is a day you have not lived. So um, we're, we're very good at being very critical about what we have. I, I certainly think that the Dutch rail system is a very good system. Uh, uh, still, we always find ways to compare it to uh, the better punctuality that there is in countries like Singapore and Japan. Uh, uh, the, the, so, you know, there's always uh, somewhere where the sun is uh, just a little bit brighter. Mm. Um, but I, I do think in the Netherlands in general, we shouldn't complain too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's great. I, re I remember the first time I suggested to... Um, to a Dutch guy that they that you guys had a fantastic rail system. <laughs> I can remember the look on his face now. <laughs> so he was quite shocked, but uh, no, I, I and I still genuinely um, genuinely believe that. Uh, so now to make that transition from the guideway vehicles to to mixed traffic, um, I mean, you, you said yourself they're more complicated. You've got more sensors and and software and things. Is it? Are you guys developing that yourself uh, within the business, or are you kind of are you pulling that um, that capability in from outside? So the the, the the system as a whole is our development. Mm. Uh, when it comes to individual products uh, or uh, sensory systems or uh, software systems, it's a mix of uh, in-house development and uh, externally sourced products. Right. So uh, for the sensory systems, uh, those are usually uh, products that we uh, get from the market where uh, the interfaces or sometimes even the, the software uh, interpreting what the sensory systems see is an in-house development. Uh, we're in the fortunate position that uh, in March of 2019, uh, to get there was uh, acquired uh, by ZF. Uh, ZF is certainly not a small player in the market. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they're um, uh, very aggressively uh, developing uh, ele electric driven vehicles mm. and uh, autonomous capabilities. So we're uh, now in a fortunate position that for a lot of the developments that are uh, necessary uh, for these type of vehicles, we have in-house uh, solutions and in-house suppliers. Right. Oh, wow. That's, uh, I, I knew um, ZF made some big statements. Um, it was fairly recently, the back end of last year or the middle of last year about um, developing autonomous um uh, I think most people listening to the the podcast would know who ZF are, but just just in case people don't, uh, Z ZF is a massive uh, tier one automotive supplier. Um, they make a lot of the bits that make your cars work. Um, so you know, if any anyone's driven uh, one of the wonderful automatic uh, BMW or Mercedes or uh, Jaguar cars, that's a ZF transmission. So particularly famous for their transmissions and gearboxes in um, higher performing vehicles and commercial vehicles as well so very um, very big in the in the bus market supplying gearboxes and such like for um, for normal normal buses um, so it's, it's interesting seeing them kind of get into this uh, this technology space does that does that mean then you're using 
um, a full suite of sensors. You 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 have uh, lidar, I guess, on the on the the new vehicles. We already had lidar on the vehicles that we were doing in 1997. So yeah, lidar oh, wow. is still part. LiDAR is still part of the equation, but uh, now the vehicles are equipped with uh, LiDAR, ultrasonics, radar, and high-definition cameras. Okay, so, so you really do have the full, um, full complement of, uh, of, of sensors. It, it, do you think there's, um, there's going to be any unification on that in the future? You know, we're seeing some people talk about uh, moving down to... Um, but we'll basically get getting rid of lidar, being able to to run autonomously without lidar. Do you, do you um, do you? Well, is is from what I understand, and I'm a commercial guy, right? So mm. I'm not a technical guy. So always be very careful on um, how far you trust me. <laughs> um, uh, but but uh, the argument that we talk about uh, internally a lot is. Um, it's very attractive to get rid of LiDAR because LiDAR is an expensive element. Uh, and right now, uh, getting towards certification uh, is not possible yet with a LiDAR system on board where it is possible with radar. Uh, and radar is uh, relatively more affordable. Um, okay. However, what you see in the market currently is that uh, LiDAR is the default that uh, all the major systems uh, still rely on. Mm. Uh, so uh, what we've done internally is we set out a, a very dedicated, how do you say that, technology roadmap where the LiDAR systems and the radar systems are being developed next to each other, where we're using the uh, attributes of each system that best suits the needs of the application. And once the uh, technology is mature and the safety evidence that we need to provide to be able to certify these systems uh, also becomes available, uh, then you can think about uh, either retaining just one or uh, uh, dropping one of the other uh, uh, sensory systems that you have on the vehicle. Right. Okay. So very much um, you're keeping abreast of, of what's happening there. Um, I, I think that there's some some really interesting things coming with sensors and um, and particularly with the vision systems and cameras and, and what people are doing um, there. It's, uh, it's it's really interesting. So I, yeah, we, we we always keep in tune with what the market is doing and when mm. there is new technologies, we're very interested in doing assessments of them and basically benchmarking them against uh, uh, our current performance. Uh, because there's one thing that's highly crucial if you're in public transit, and everybody that deals with public transit knows one thing, that if the weather is not good, uh, people want to get in. Uh, if uh, it's a sunny day weather, uh, people might actually walk, take a bike, uh, uh, or anything else. But uh, to make sure that your public transit system still operates even when it rains uh, is, is absolutely crucial. You, you can't sell to your passengers, oh, sorry, it rains, we're not operating the autonomous vehicle today. Um, so uh, the, the reliability and availability of these systems is uh, absolutely critical in, in making a financially viable business case. Yeah, and I, I guess because of the nature, I mean, the, the number of programs that you've got now and, and different locations, you must have that ability to run in all kind of different weather conditions. Is there anything that... Um, that stops your your vehicles, or, or do they uh, do they keep uh, keep trugging away through pretty much everything? Well, uh, fortunately, we can still operate in fog. We can still operate in um, uh, uh, rain, mm. but obviously, there's always extreme weather conditions that will halt your vehicle. Uh, so, uh, wind. I think we go up to a scale of 
seven or eight on the scale of Beaufort. And then uh, if it exceeds that, yeah, then it becomes <laughs> a, a little bit too much for the vehicle. Yeah. Uh, so so we, we do operate in a normal mode and a degraded mode. So it means that when we reach a, th a certain threshold, we'll uh, adapt the vehicle behavior to suit the uh, climatic circumstances. Um, Best example is uh, snow and ice. Mm. Uh, if there's snow and ice conditions, the acceleration, deceleration, and the top speed of the vehicles will be adjusted to uh, what is normal for a rubber-tired vehicle, just like you as a driver would do in your car. You're taking the circumstances of the road into account. Yeah. Um, so, so those kind of uh, measures are, are all present within the system to make sure that we can continue to provide transportation as long as possible, but do take into account the circumstances that we're facing. Okay, that's really interesting. And, and, and a connected question, I've heard that um, sensor cleaning can be a bit of a challenge um, in in some of these vehicles and some different applications. Do you have, um, have you got a special solution for sensor cleaning or is there kind of, um, is, is, is that a challenge for you as well? Uh, no, uh, there, there's procedures for the maintenance staff to uh, do visual inspections and checks. Mm. Um, what is different is that, uh, and obviously this being a podcast and being a little bit less visual, so I'm mm. not sure everybody has a picture of our vehicle, but if they don't, I encourage you to look um, at pictures of our vehicles uh, online, yeah. is that uh, our sensors are not... Uh, mounted on the body, but they're actually present within the body, and we have openings in the bumpers on uh, through which they look outside. So uh, they're actually shielded from the environment, and uh, we don't have the ability to directly get rain on the sensor. So that uh, uh, helps tremendously in that regard. Uh, in addition, um, uh, what we do is uh, we use this uh, sensors fail safe. So our vehicles are continuously planning to stop within the horizon of what they're looking out for unless they don't see anything so they scan the area in front of the vehicle or uh, around the vehicle empty if we don't see anything we're allowed to continue to drive if we uh, are unable to look because mm. there is something on the sensor we're automatically stopping right yeah okay if, yeah it's interesting and that's um uh, being able to to make sure that the you can always see where you're going. I mean, that's it's that's the real kind of um, key thing about getting autonomous systems up and running. I, I will. Um, I meant to just say I'll put some some links in the show notes um, to your website so people can if um, if you're interested in what the vehicles look like. If you you go down to the show notes below, you'll I'll put some links in so you can click through to them. Um, very nice looking, uh, very sort of sleek looking autonomous pods look look a bit like something um out of a out of a science fiction movie maybe from the future <laughs> yeah and, and i have to give credit here to our ceo because uh, when we first started uh, with our smaller vehicle the, the the prt vehicle that's operational since uh, 2010 in abu dhabi at master city um we had a CEO that said uh, at the time of the design he said uh, forget uh, form follows function 
uh, it's uh, the, the form that's really important. And we'll just have to make sure that all the components fit within the space that the design allows for. So uh, mm -hmm. since that time, we um, we reached out to Segato, one of the uh, well key designers uh, in, in, in Italy for famous car designers in Italy. Yeah. And uh, they designed both our uh, small vehicle, the PRT vehicle, and our larger vehicle, the GRT vehicle. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, well, we have a, a family look and feel uh, made by a uh, well, a designer that actually knows what he does. So uh, I, I, I do believe that we have a, a the best looking vehicle in the market. I, I, yeah, I'd, I'd be inclined to agree. It's it's very. Um, I just had a look at the PRT. Actually, I hadn't seen that until just now. It's very very sleek looking uh, vehicle. And, and sometimes with these projects, I think particularly where you have uh, maybe. Almost pains me to say this, being an engineer myself. But too many engineers in the room, uh, they forget about you know things having to look right. Uh, and sometimes, um, you know, with, with some of the other products out there doing these kind of things, they kind of end up looking a bit weird um, and not very kind of not very aesthetically pleasing. And uh, that 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 can be a bit of a barrier to um, for people getting excited about these systems in in themselves. If you've got vehicles that uh, don't kind of look don't look right but yours definitely um definitely look right well and, and that that's one of the things we learned throughout all the generations of the automated products that we did it's about balance issue in your team so if you have a, a very strong characters or a over representation of a certain kind of engineer uh, it means that the issues that you'll face during the development will be solved by the person or the people that are uh, most present within your team. So the balance within your team to make sure that problems get addressed in the in the right area instead of the area where the most dominant people are is absolutely essential, which means a mechanical uh, uh, issue should not be solved in software and the other way around. Yeah, no, I, I agree definitely. So whereabouts you've, you've mentioned a couple of the um, a couple of the places where we'll find to get their vehicles running now. Um, where, where do you have vehicles in operation? So the, uh, the, 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 the nicest location to come and look after the summer when it's uh, up and running is the third generation at, uh, at Rivian Business Park, which is uh, in the city of Capella and the IJssel, uh, just, I would say, what is it, east of uh, Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also installing a, a project at uh, Brussels Airport in, uh, in Belgium. Uh, the vehicles are operational at um, Master City in Abu Dhabi. Uh, there is a vehicle that will be operational uh, in, in Singapore uh, also by summertime. And there is a vehicle that will be operational at a test site in Orlando in the U.S. Uh, by summer. Uh, in addition, there's a couple of projects that are, uh, let's say, on the brink of... Uh, uh, signing, which means that, um, well, we, uh, the lead time to delivery of a project is anywhere between uh, 18 months to three years, depending on the size of the project, meaning that they uh, they might be coming to a location near you. Yeah, yeah, great. And it, it, do, do you see a big um, kind of shift in the market? Is, is there more appetite now for deploying vehicles like this and systems like this in in the market do you... there's a great interest um mm. and we make a um a, a distinction between um, 
what we call demonstrations or uh, and and on the other hand a proof of concept or a permanent application so you see that over the past probably four to five years there have been a lot of demonstrations which mm. means that uh, people are deploying one or two vehicles for um, anywhere from three months to two years uh, to carry a very limited amount of passengers and create enthusiasm about uh, what autonomous vehicles are. And obviously these demonstrations are being done to try to convince decision makers that autonomous vehicles are ready and that it should be a full-time project that uh, should be implemented. Yeah. Um, what unfortunately doesn't happen too often because demonstrations usually show vehicles still at a relatively limited speed with a steward on board, mm. which, um, uh, well, basically communicates to decision makers that uh, the vehicles are not ready yet for uh, deployment. Uh, what we prefer is an approach like uh, the line did in Belgium for Brussels airport, where they said, okay, um, we have an application that we think creates an interesting business case, uh, but we want the technical risk of the implementation mitigated through a proof of concept. So you need to demonstrate to us through the proof of concept that the system actually works under the circumstances that are here and against the requirements that we've set. And if you pass the proof of concept, it triggers the, de the, the deployment of the, of the system. Uh, which is a really interesting way for us to work because it means that uh, you are doing a uh, demonstration of some sort, calling it a proof of concept. But if you complete that, you control your own uh, faith uh, in, in being able to roll out a complete system. Yeah. So I'm, uh, as a company to get there is being a little bit stubborn in the sense that we're not really interested in demonstrations, uh, even though we do do them sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but we're... Uh, specifically interested in talking to cities about, you know, how can we use the experience that we build over the past 20 years to yeah, actually yeah. roll out these systems in a permanent fashion with a financially viable business case uh, where people can rely on them day in, day out. Yeah, I guess you're at that point now where you've been doing it for 20 years and you don't, you don't really need to prove that it, it can work. You can uh, show lots of case studies and examples and videos and uh, analysis it's uh, kind of getting into the the kind of practical commercial deployment um and, and i noticed you've you've talked a lot about passengers um are there are there other applications where you have um deployed vehicles for, for moving other stuff so uh yeah so if if you, if you look way back uh we are a spin out of a company that used to be called uh, frog agv systems and agv is an acronym for automated guided vehicles right. uh that company was started in 1984 and automated guided vehicles were being used to uh, move goods in warehouses uh, so uh, anything from uh, plastic injection molding to cds to uh, steel coils were being uh, moved around. Uh, that company still exists. It's been taken over by uh, Oceaneering. Uh, so it's now called Oceaneering AGV Systems. Mm. Um, still very active in the industrial markets. Um, in addition, uh, Oceaneering also uses the technology for ride systems. So if you go to the website of uh, Oceaneering and look up entertainment systems, you'll find ride vehicles that are basically based on the same 
guidance technology as we use in our uh, vehicles. Uh, and uh, the technology has also been uh, used in port environments. So the automated container terminals uh, that are delivered around the world basically also use the same principle uh, that we use. So the uh, Europe combined terminal, ECT terminal in uh, the port of Rotterdam has 370 automated guided vehicles that use the same basic automation technology that our vehicles use. Okay, so for moving containers around in inside the port? Is that... yeah, yeah, so between the what they call the key cranes and the stacking area, there's uh, uh, flatbed vehicles driving back and forth uh, moving the containers oh wow i, di I didn't know that that's uh, that's a big uh, big application and in in the systems that you deploy now are they kind of self-contained um or is there some sort of back-end like supervisory operating system you know is it can you sort of control and change the routes of the vehicles yeah, uh, uh, the, the supervisory system is absolutely an essential element of any automated transit system. Mm. And I think this is a key difference between uh, to get there and other suppliers uh, in the market is um, there, there appears to be a very big focus on the vehicle. And we'll agree that the vehicle is the most visible aspect, which why is one of the reasons why you pay so much time and attention to how it looks. But uh, ultimately, the vehicle is just one part of the system, and the supervisory system might actually be more important mm. to make sure that the system actually delivers the transit that is required by the passengers. So the operator that uh, has the overview of the system needs to be able to see uh, where vehicles are, what vehicles are doing, whether or not the performance of the vehicles up to standard, uh, all those kinds of elements need to be able to be checked. Uh, and in that supervisory system, it includes the routing, the dispatching, uh, managing uh, potentially conflicts between the routes of vehicles. So all that is present in the supervisory system. Yeah. Uh, we are currently in our uh, third generation of that system, uh, rolling that out towards the Rivium application. Uh, and have created that in such a way that it um, uh, has a distributed architecture, meaning that um, if in the future we need to roll it out over a city uh, and uh, we can basically do handoffs between different uh, sections, just right. like air traffic controllers do. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I do think, I think um, I've often wondered that op the, about the operating system, I, I can imagine like running a, a sort of small, um, you know, maybe two or three vehicles is one thing, but the way some applications could easily go quite quickly at a, at a city level or at a, you know, a, a close site like a, like an airport, like Schiphol Airport, you could have all kinds of different automated vehicles from different vehicle manufacturers trying to sort of occupy the same space. And, and then they need some sort of back-end um it would be helpful to have some kind of back-end supervisory system that could operate um, or, or kind of um, coordinate all of those vehicles' activity. Yeah, so, so our supervisory system is based on the supervisory system that we used to have in the industrial environment. Mm. Uh, currently, we are in our third generation of the system for uh, people moving applications, uh, and it's been set up specifically to... Uh, take into account that what you see now with autonomous vehicles, uh, that it should be able to control a large fleet of autonomous vehicles. So uh, uh, where our previous deployments were 6, 10, uh, 25 vehicles, 
the requirement for this application was specifically to be able to create or, or to, to be able to coordinate uh, fleets in excess of uh, uh, 100, 500, 1,000 vehicles. Wow. That would be... Um... That'd be quite something to uh, to to imagine. We could get to that that point where you've got a thousand vehicle fleets operating in a in a city or in a, a different uh, scenario. How... Uh, we're we're looking forward to that as well. Well, so so here's a question for you: how how far away do you think that is? Is that you know a couple of years off or? Five years or ten years? Where do you no, think that's, that, that's going to be uh, probably about ten years off uh, right now. Um, we need to make the transition uh, from the thinking of uh, limited applications where people are thinking, oh, I might carry uh, 100 people an hour from A to B to uh, actually allowing them to think about carrying uh, 500 people an hour to uh, 2,000 people an hour to mm -hmm. perhaps 5,000 people an hour. Because uh, uh, aside from everything that we're going through now uh, in normal life where um, – in Dutch, you say "kudde uh, dieren," which means we 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 are herd. We are in the herd, yep. uh, and we all want to move to our work at the same time. Yeah. So uh, it means that any transit system will have to accommodate a significant peak demand in the peak hour, in the rush hour, uh, and outside of those hours, it's uh, much less utilized. Yeah, which is, is of course. Always strikes me one of the problems uh, that we have with conventional kind of bus systems is basically buses are very big, um, so you've got quite a large fixed capacity there. And it, even if you take vehicles off the roads during off-peak times, you still got normally quite large vehicles driving around half empty um, in 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 those off-peak periods. And the I guess the benefit of a, a, a large-scale autonomous system is it's much easier to flex um, that capacity in and out. Yeah. Uh, plus, you have to deal with the drivers uh, where uh, you need 100% of your drivers in the peak hour and you might only need 50% as soon as the peak hour uh, ends. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's a big uh, some potential to Im improve the how we move around. Um, so so another question, I'm, I'm really fascinated by, you know, your business model is very much focused on the kind of mass transit um, and integration with um other other modes of transport what do you feel about the um developments in the the passenger vehicle space so the sort of personal um autonomous vehicle space is that going to um be a threat to your business or is that an, an advantage to your business um, and what what do you see happening there uh, the answer is basically both, because uh, anytime uh, autonomous technologies are being developed for passenger vehicles, it means they come available at a uh, large size uh, and at a low price. So being able to integrate those developed components in our systems actually becomes more attractive and makes our systems more affordable. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, uh, whether they're a threat or not, uh, completely depends on what city you're talking about. Um, uh, if you have a city that's... Uh, let's say a smart city, so wants to accommodate transportation for all and uh, wants to get rid of the, um, how do you say that, exhaust within the uh, in the city and, and the crowdness within the city. Uh, I think that those cities are going to be implementing more and more uh, policies to restrict car use in the city center. Uh, 
we mm. are uh, often saying that uh, increased mobility and increased accessibility of cities goes along with increased livability of cities, which actually means that there should be less vehicles in the city transporting more people. So shared usage is really uh, critical to that. Um, the idea of having personalized cars uh, or having cars in cities, even electric and even autonomous, uh, and, and bringing uh, people right to the doors of their destination, to me, doesn't make any sense at all, because it means that the amount of vehicles that are going into a city will only increase, mm -hmm. uh, making it even more difficult to uh, to cross a street or to get somewhere. And um, all this vehicle traffic, vehicular traffic is, is not going to improve our cities uh, in the long run. Yeah. So. Um, I firmly believe, uh, and I, I think that's being recognized by smart cities as well, that uh, uh, good transit within cities is the, the future of the big cities uh, mm. around the world. Uh, I do believe in passenger cars on highways going from A to B, uh, which is a, a very uh, monotonous uh, task uh, where drivers easily become distracted mm. uh, that all the advanced autonomous systems that can support the driving task or even take over that driving task completely um, uh, will um, will be introduced very soon so uh, automating a vehicle on a highway uh, which is a relatively predictable environment because you don't have any cross traffic you don't have any uh, major speed differences. Uh, you, you don't have, um, well, let's say pedestrians and, and bikes uh, accessing the the, the, the the interstate or the highway. Um, I think you'll see uh, autonomous vehicles there first. Mm, yeah. yeah it's, I, I often um, sort of wonder about that kind of thing, maybe then having an impact on things like um, long distance rail. You know, if, if, if someone could get into a car and have a an almost autonomous journey from you know point a to point b and this is more about at, between cities or, or from sort of uh, towns towns to cities but those longer distance journeys where you might have driven to a rail station then got on a train and gone on the train and then got off the train and you know etc it's quite a complex journey actually the the sort of simplicity of a a single journey in a in a vehicle that's almost autonomous um or, or is fully autonomous for the whole journey i can imagine in a lot of people that might be a preferred option and even if the this peak peak speed of the vehicle was slower so you know a train can go really fast and maybe a, a tired vehicle couldn't go as as fast as a train but because you don't have all the stops and the waiting and the changing between modes of transport it could be quite an efficient journey as well um, so i wouldn't i do wonder about how that will impact of course the there's a big thing and there's a question in this that with the cost of implementing um and in a lot of cases you know a metro system is um is really desirable in a in a modern city but they're very 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 expensive to implement particularly underground uh, metro systems so you know kind of balancing out that really high capital cost against um more you know, alternate um, systems. I, I'm imagining that's part of the business case for your system. Well, I, I mean, there, there's uh, different ways to look at it, right? If you, um, and I always, um, uh, I'm familiar with the example of the Paris Metro, 
Mm. If you look what uh, capacity and how many people are transported by one metro line, it would require, I think, the equivalent of eight lanes of guideway side by side in each direction uh, through the heart of Paris to match one metro line. Yeah. So um, uh, w w we can say that metro lines are expensive, but at the same time, uh, creating a 16-lane um, uh, wide uh, highway through the city center uh, might not be cheap either. <laughs> uh, so, so in that regard, uh, it's always uh, pick your poison. Um, and I think that uh, what, what you mentioned with regards to the journey that people might prefer, uh, yes, I can understand a single mode of operation that picks you up right in front of your door and drops you off right in front of where you need to be is the preferred option. Uh, I think in the long run, though, uh, that option uh, doesn't exist even in the car, because if you imagine that everybody would be using that car living outside the city center, and coming to work in the city center, what that means in terms of the number of cars actually coming towards the city center. And after they drop the passengers off, those cars need to go and park somewhere. And everybody argues that autonomous cars will uh, uh, avoid the need for parking downtown. Yeah. Well, uh, unless they are going to be roaming around endlessly looking for passengers that are not there because it's not the peak hour anymore, it means that the cars need to park outside the city center. So instead mm -hmm. of creating parking in the city center, we have created cars that need to go into the city in the morning, out of the city afterwards, and then at night need to come back in to pick you back up and then drive you home. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, I'm not sure if taking away all the parking in the city center is a good idea if we still insist on having that personal automobile, which means that ultimately, I think uh, 10, 20 years down the road, um, you're not gonna be able to park your car in front of your office anymore. Mm, yeah, I know in, in a lot of cases, I think we obviously we have a particular view of the world from Europe, um, uh, uh, but then you, you go to Asia and it's quite a different um, perspective straight away, the way their cities operate, the size of the cities, the number of people trying to move around. So it's a different, very different kind of transport needs. Um, and also it, it does feel like in general people are less in love with uh, personal cars you know got just sort of anecdotal evidence of i've never known as many younger people who can't drive uh, and, and just aren't interested in driving actually um so they're quite happy you know their lives are kind of based around cities or they um will get the train or the bus um or the metro um to to get around and that's that does seem to be be, be more and more common than it um than it used to be i don't know if that's a similar experience in the Netherlands? Uh, for me, personally, the life-changing fact was having kids. Mm. Uh, where prior to kids, you were, um, let's say, relatively easy and lazy and would be using the car to go most places. Yeah. Once you have kids, they actually look at the world very differently. They enjoy bike rides a lot more. Mm. And they think the bus is the coolest thing in the world. So <laughs> uh, nowadays, when I go to the city center, there's no way I'm not going by the bus because that's what my kids love to do the most. Oh, that's fantastic. That is, of course, you mentioned bikes. So the, the Netherlands is, is famous for its uh, fantastic uh, cycleways and, um, and and bike riding, ridership. It, it, I always hear c countries talk about wanting to replicate the success of the cycle networks in the Netherlands. Do you think it's possible in another country or, or are you guys just, um, as well as being direct and, uh, and brutal, you're also just uh, addicted to your bikes? 
Uh, well, we're, we're addicted to our bikes, but uh, frankly, uh, where there's a will is a way. Mm. So if there's countries that want to have the same cycle infrastructure as the Netherlands, I would strongly encourage them to do so. Um, uh, biking is um, a, a healthy activity, yeah. and it's certainly not an activity that uh, automated vehicles uh, should take passengers away from. So uh, if, if we design a system basically to compete with uh, either walking or biking, we've done our job terribly wrong. Uh, yeah. So we're, we're, we're not there to steal passengers from buses. We're not there to uh, decrease the number of bicyclists or the number of pede uh, pedestrians. We're, we're there to uh, uh, provide an alternative for the car. Right. And is, uh, are your vehicles capable of carrying bikes? Do they have some sort of provision to, to move bikes or do you kind of rely on people leaving the bike at the, the pickup point? Uh, so, so currently we haven't made specific provisions in the vehicle. There's sufficient space to get a bike on the vehicle. Mm. Uh, whether or not that's allowed is something that we leave on to, uh, to the operator of the system. Right. You know, it, it, it took me about 10 years of traveling to America to work out what the, the big um, beefy black metal structures were on the front of the buses. <laughs> I think yeah, I uh, to me, that's puzzling because you're you're doing the worst of both things. Because mm. if you're bringing your bike, it actually takes more time to mount your bike to the front of the bus, mm. therefore slowing the bus again in its journey towards its final destination and making it less attractive to use. Yeah, they seem to be very rarely used. <laughs> so, but almost every bus that you see in America has one uh, on, on the front of it, which so is a good idea, but um, it doesn't seem to get... Uh, doesn't seem to get very well used at all. No, I, I think the people in the Netherlands either use the small folding bikes mm. that I, I, I see around being used, uh, and I know there's other people that just have two bikes, one in the city where they live and one in the city where they work. Oh, really? Okay. So you just you, you get the train in and pick up your, your town bike and, and ride on to from the station to, to your workplace? Yeah, it's what I did when I was at university. I would be going home for the weekends, and uh, mm. I had two bikes. Ah, well, you can never have uh, enough bikes. That's uh, that's definitely my. That's what I keep telling my wife. Anyway, um, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a good excuse. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't leave one in the city, but um, yeah, no, it's it's very. We have different um, in in the UK. Cycling's definitely other than London. In in London, it's very serious commuting. Um, but outside of London, it, I would say it's quite unusual to commute on the bike. Uh, it's very much a recreational activity. But uh, ne Netherlands is, it just always seems fantastic in terms of um, cycle commuting. It's, it really is. It, yeah, I think for journeys up to 10 kilometers it's, uh, in the Netherlands, it's, it, it has a dominant market share, which, mm. is, which is a good thing. And you see so many kids going to school that way as well, which must just be fantastic, a fantastic way for them to start the day as well and good for their health and fitness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so in terms of the business, then um, you said uh, you, there's a lot of interest at the moment. What's the you know what, what what's coming that's that's really exciting? What what's the the next kind of big programs that you're going to see? How we're going to see your your vehicles going out there with? So, so we're absolutely excited about the first mixed traffic applications. Those are already under contract. Hmm. Uh, at the same time, we're working on our um, First, how do you say, uh, public-private partnership uh, to, to deliver a system, which is exciting. Um, and there's, um, uh, let's say, hopefully, Corona doesn't delay us too much, but um, 
uh, towards uh, the end of this year, early next year, uh, we hope to have the first contracts in place for applications in the US and in Asia, uh, which would be an exciting next step to make as well. Yeah, okay, fantastic. Um, and are you doing things in the future looking at other sort of applications like um, other service vehicles and, and things like that? Or are you going to stay very focused on um, on the passenger transport? Uh, r- r- right now, our focus is completely with passenger transport. So, uh, yes, there's appeal. And every once in a while, especially on Friday afternoons where we're having a small get-together, uh, we, we, we think about and dream about what else could we do. Yeah. Um, but those are not... Um, serious development efforts that are being undertaken within the company at this time mm, yeah yeah okay and uh, so my last last question because i think we're actually over time but it's been so interesting uh um uh, so hope you can forgive me hopefully um but what if you could change one thing in terms of um getting more uh deployments of, of your kind of technology out there what do you think that one one change would be oh wow uh, uh, to get better information to cities to make sure that they make a more informed decision on where these systems are installed already. So instead of all these cities around the world focusing on demonstrations and showing off, uh, actually making sure that they have good knowledge on uh, what type of system can be operated with an economically viable business case today, uh, to make sure that the introduction of these type of systems goes a lot quicker uh, than it has been going. Ah, great. Well, hopefully this podcast could be a starting point for uh, for some of that information gathering. And I guess um, they'll uh, have to make a, a beeline for you guys. Um, it's, it's been really interesting. I feel like... Um, uh, to be honest, there's more questions popped into my head than, um, than than we've had time to go through. So we may end up coming back to this uh, down the line. But that's that's been really fascinating, Robert. Thank you so much for taking the time out to do that. Uh, no problem. Uh, I guess it all depends on how your listeners actually react to the podcast. And if you get no reactions or you get only reactions about what this guy from the Netherlands were saying, I guess that there's no sequel to this meeting. But otherwise, <laughs> I, I'm more than open to, to have another discussion. Brilliant. OK, thank you. So that's all we've got time for in today's episode. Um, that was a fantastic discussion with Robert. I learned so much about to get there and about their business model and uh, what's coming for them in the uh, in the connected and autonomous vehicle space. I think their business model is really interesting, using the AVs for last mile. And like Robert said, they're now moving into that being in mixed uh, traffic. So that's, that's a big step forward for them. I think obviously there's lots of other uh, AV developments coming across the space. So it'd be really interesting. Um, we've got a couple more people lined up to talk to in that area in the next few months. So... Really, really good discussion with Robert there. I wish to get there all the best uh, in the future and hopefully we might get to talk to him again soon. So if you enjoyed that and got some value out of that, uh, please don't forget to hit like, leave us a rating below, um, share this podcast with your friends. We've got lots more really uh, fantastic episodes coming. We've got some really great expert speakers lined up for the next couple of weeks. Um, So that's all we've got time for today. Uh, And I really do look forward to speaking to you again soon.